Welcome to Halfway History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. But today, I'm very long ago. I think I'm going to be beating you this time. Yeah, probably considering I'm in the 50s. <laughs> well, well, I'm in the, uh, I'm in 93. 493. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you get to go first. Cool. Do we have any updates? I don't think so. I don't think so either. I got nada. So my topic is on March 15th of 493. This week, I'm going all the way back in time to Italy on March 15th to talk about the murder of a prominent ruler. Ooh. It's not Julius Caesar, even though it's the Ides of March. Oh, interesting. All right. <laughs> Since, you know, that was like 400 years prior to 493. That's true. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. yep. So we're going to talk about Odoacer. So Odoacer was the first barbarian king of Italy, which is oh. why it stood out to me because I'm like, Italy had barbarian kings? And then I like, as I was reading it, I'm like, oh yeah, of course they did. They had like the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. I just completely forgot that there was a period of time <laughs> where there were just barbarians who ran that area yeah, of the world. That's cool. Okay. Tell me more about this barbarian king. Well, quick side note is that there were 35 barbarian kings which ruled Italy. At the same time? No. Oh. Like, ones that actually claimed themselves as kings and were identified as kings. Gotcha. Because, like, I know for a long time, Italy was, like, city-states where, like, the cities were ruled by Yeah, at this point, it's still kind of like that, but... But there is, like, a king. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, I also think that it's mostly because this guy went around and retook all of those lands. So Fair enough. <laughs> kind of brought it all together. So the, uh, I guess one more side note is the last barbarian king before they Italy moved into more of like a, I guess a monarchy, or what it kind of is today. I I don't know. Like, well, it's still a monarchy. It's just not a barbarian monarchy. I yeah, 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 yeah. I was yeah. going to say. Well, technically, <laughs> no, no longer barbarian kings. Um, the last barbarian king was Charlemagne. Oh, Char okay. Charlemagne was considered a barbarian king. He was king of the Lombards, which were another barbarian tribe. Oh, all right. Didn't know that. So who was Odoacer? Not a ton is known about his early life other than that he was from a Germanic Siri tribe and was the son of a noblewoman and Edico the Hun. Edico the Hun was advisor to none other than Attila the Hun. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> After the Hun Empire dissolved, Odoacer fought for his father, the new king of Siri. Um, the first actual historical evidence of Odoacer is around this part of his life, where he played a minor role as a soldier fighting the Visigoths in 463. So Odoacer, not long after, joined the Roman army in 470. And due to the dwindling size of said army, rose quickly to the rank of an officer. Cool. At the time, Julius Nepos was emperor of the West, appointed by the Eastern Byzantine Empire. There was also another general named Orestes, who was also a fighter in Attila's army before joining Rome. Both Odoacer and Orestes were well-liked by their men, came from tribes, and made the tribes soldiers 
feel at ease since their leaders were not Roman bureaucrats, but people who could speak their own language and knew their tribal chieftains and families personally. That's nice. Yeah. So it was kind of refreshing for some of these soldiers. Yeah, I bet. Once Orestes became commander-in-chief of the army in 1475, he led his army against Julius Nepos, forcing him into exile, and had his teenage son Romulus Augustulus declared the emperor. Augustulus? Augustulus. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What's wrong with good old Augustus? (laughs) It's got to be more pomp and circumstance for these Romans. Apparently. His reward for his soldiers was supposed to be land that they could call home, but the land that they desired was currently owned by other innocent Romans. Whoops. Not wanting to make an authoritarian call and ruin the people the people he now had his family ruling over, he decided to stand up against his raging army and support all of his subjects' rights to their own land. Okay. And this didn't sit well with the (laughs) army, and many moved away from Orestes and Romulus and into Odoacer's ranks. Hmm. The difference between Orestes and Odoacer was that Orestes was concerned with ethics, and Odoacer had ambition and was a bold barbarian. They knew that bolstering Odoacer meant that they would get land that they wanted, regardless of the cost to others. Less than a year later, Odoacer besieged the city of Pavia, where Orestes had prepared his army to defend. Orestes lost the battle, retreating and reforming his army at Pazenza. This was futile as Odoacer pursued him there and battled Orestes himself. On Orestes' defeat, Odoacer ordered him executed and declared himself king of Italy on August 23rd of 476. All right. Unfortunately, those part of the Roman army not associated with the Germanic tribes refused to accept Odoacer. They gathered their remaining forces in Ravenna on September 2nd, 476, Two days later, Odoacer deposed of the teen king Romulus Augustulus, (laughs) putting him on house arrest with fixed annual allowance, and at this point, Romulus disappears from history. You know what? That's better than just being murdered, so... (laughs) He's like, here, kid, get out of the throne, have some money. So, Odoacer sent word to the Byzantine emperor uh, Zeno, saying that he ruled Rome now and the Byzantine Empire was not happy. They sent a reply reprimanding Odoacer and the Roman Senate saying that he had too quickly overthrown multiple rulers and the Byzantine-approved Julius Nepos was to be placed back in power. According to them, they would have no issues if Nepos decided to grant Odoacer rulership after his return to Rome. Odoacer's response was direct, and he had no wish to allow Julius Nepos back into Rome and formally declared himself as king of Italy to the Byzantine Empire. Oh, boy. Officially ending the Western Roman Empire. Ah. His first two years, he granted his supporters what they wanted, land, and had to quell disputes between many tribes and Romans. By the end of the two years, he did just about that and had majority approval from the Roman Senate and Roman Catholic Church. The the latter, mostly because he never intervened or disagreed with anything that they decreed, despite Odoacer himself being very Christian. He just kind of let the Roman Catholic Church do what they wanted because he knew that they were really strong. Right. So it was like, here, you keep doing your thing. Don't interfere with me and my ruling. So in 480, he invaded Dalmatia, which is present-day Croatia, 
and largely conquered the region. Seeing this, Illus, the head of the army of the Eastern Empire, asked Odoacer to help him depose of the previous ruler Zeno, who I guess was put into power again by the Byzantine Empire at some point over some, <laughs> oh, some swath of land he got power over again. That poor guy just keeps getting like removed. <laughs> yeah. So Odoacer did help him, and the Byzantine Empire responded by sending the Rugi, which is modern-day Austria, to attack Italy. In 488, man, it is really hard not saying 14, like, <laughs> not saying teen after something. Yeah, you're oh. not used to dealing with such an early date, are you? No, just every time <laughs> I say this, I keep thinking I'm about to say 14. No, just no, four. just four. So in 488, this conflict with the Rugi ended with a few wins and losses on either side. The Rugi took much, much of northern Italy, but Odoacer took much of the Rugi homeland. <laughs> so during this time, Odoacer also reclaimed Sicily. Oh, all right. However, in 488, not long after being deposed, Zeno appointed a new king of Italy, the Ostrogoth Theodric. Theodoric? Theodric? I, I found like two different spellings of it, and I'm trying to parse it together. It's Theodoric or Theoderic. I like Theodoric. Okay. It seems more... I think it's just Thodric. I think oh, that's that, you, you know that. what? I bet you're right. Okay. <laughs> so the Ostrogoth, Thodric. In August 28th of 489, Thodric came to Italy to meet Odoacer, hand, handling Odoacer his first real defeat in battle. Odoacer withdrew to Verona on September 27th, and Thodric followed and defeated him yet again. Oops. Odoacer then took refuge in Ravenna, and Thodric continued across Italy to Medol Mediolanum, oh. where the majority of Odoacer's army, including his chief general Tufa, surrendered to the Ostrogothic king. The following summer, the Visigothic king, Alric II, demonstrated one of these rare displays of salt of gothic solidarity and sent military aid to help his kinsmen forcing odoacer to raise his siege in Aug on august 11th of 490 the armies of the two kings clashed at the addo river and odoacer was again defeated and forced back to revena which if you remember from earlier was where odoacer had defeated romulus back when he first took over uh, italy Ravenna was surrounded by marshes and difficult to siege. It had some waterways that allowed small boats to continually bring fortifying supplies, which helped Odoacer keep the even more difficult to siege aspects of it. Um, by this time, Odoacer had to have lost all hope for victory, and it was kind of a wait-to-die scenario. Ooh. It was just a matter of how long they could wait it out in their fortress rather than if they'd ever be able to win. Ooh. So on July 9th of 491, Odoacer tried to get a portion of his army out of the fortress to hopefully regain some control over the battle, and it ended very poorly. Uh. <laughs> uh, his commander-in-chief, along with some of his best soldiers, were immediately slaughtered. Ooh. Yep. Ouch. But the war dragged on until February 25th of 493. Good Lord. When the Bishop of Ravenna was able to negotiate a treaty between Thodric and Odoacer, laying out terms that would allow both of them to rule jointly, Thodric entered the city on March 5th of 493 to begin this oligarchy. On March 15th, Thodric invited Odoacer to a feast. As they were eating, Thodric 
stood up and struck Odoacer in the chest with his sword. Thodric was trying to have his men set up an assassination while they had had been eating, but got wind that the plan was not going to work out and took matters into his own hands. Uh, clearly. Odoacer asked the dying question, where is God? And Thodric replied to him, this is what you did to my friends. That's not really the answer to the question he asked. Nope, not at all. But that is <laughs> that is the assassination of Odoacer, the first barbarian king on the Ides of March in 493. All right. Italy has a thing with killing people on March 15th. I think I actually saw Apparently. in my- Apparently. Yeah, in the in the notes, I think I saw another like prominent ruler of Italy was killed on March 15th <laughs> like, as I was looking for topics. And I'm like, are you kidding? Italy, oh, you got to cut goodness. this out. <laughs> yeah, they're having a hard time with that, apparently. Hello and welcome to That Was Genius. My name's Sam. And my name's Tom. And we are two friends from university who now live on completely the opposite sides of the world, but are still united through a love of history and stupid accents and silly jokes. (laughs) Oh, yes. To be honest, we mentioned history first, but it really does come a very distant third. (laughs) (laughs) That Was Genius is a history podcast in which... Tom and I exchange stories on a theme each week. We decide the theme a week beforehand, but everything else that happens is a surprise. Hence the stupid jokes and the bad accents. So, what can you expect from That Was Genius? Well, we discuss all kinds of things, like Mexican generals with no legs. (laughs) Good choice. I'm going to put it out there. Mexico has a slightly difficult history. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my Lord. But it doesn't end there, Tom, because in 1847, Santa Ana was having lunch during the Battle of Cerro Gordo during the US-Mexican War when American troops surprised him. With an extra leg? <laughs> well, he he ran away, being as he was no, not actually didn't. a very good no, general. He hopped. <laughs> Sam, he cannot run away. <laughs> it's not physically possible. Shit, the sources don't add up. <laughs> Okay, correction. He away on his one <laughs> Correction. American troops surprised him and he hopped off. You are in fact correct, Tom, because the soldiers who'd surprised him captured his two false legs. <laughs> one of which, one of which was paraded around American country fairs as a freak show and people would pay, people would pay a cent or a dime to see it. The other one, Tom, the other of his legs was used as a baseball bat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think that's Tom's favourite from the vaults. (laughs) So, if you think that was genius is up your street. Oh, I say, I bet it is. Up your alley. Do subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. We have new episodes every Wednesday night slash Thursday morning, depending on where you are in the world. So do give us a follow, give us a like. And if you like what you hear... Tune in again. All right. Well, my topic is a little bit more lighthearted, I I think. Maybe. We'll see. This week, I'm going to take a bit of a departure from my usual kind of topic. You know, Ooh. like very historical. And lots of death at the end. Well. Did we switch roles? <laughs> sort of. And um, I'm going to talk about a toy release. Toys? Yeah, toys. Um. On March 9th, 1959, the toy company Mattel released the Barbie doll. Oh, okay. Woohoo! Um, Mattel co-founder Ruth Handler is credited with the creation of the doll, although its design was um, partially created by 
former uh, missile engineer turned toy designer Jack Ryan, which I found that really funny that he was a missile engineer and then became a Barbie doll designer. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm an engineer right now and I'm really looking to maybe just do podcasting. So I mean, that's true. Yeah, I, I think we are a stressed out group of people looking for any other form of creativity. any other sort of outlet. Yeah. yeah. All right. Fair enough. So the inspiration for the Barbie came from a German fashion doll that was released in 1955 called Build Lily, uh, which was in turn based on a comic strip character called Lily, which was created by Reinhard Buthen for the German tabloid newspaper Build. When ordered to draw a filler cartoon for the first issue released in 1952, uh, Reinhard drew an unruly baby which his editor really disliked. So then he adapted the drawing into a sexy ponytailed blonde sitting in a fortune teller's tent. I feel like that had to have been like a a joke going from one extreme to the other. Probably. That like, would be ah, right. Yeah, yeah, of course this is what would sell. Yeah, probably. So uh, the, the cartoon character um, was asking, can't you give me the name and address of this tall, handsome, rich man? And the cartoon was an immediate success because men sex sell <laughs> and became a daily feature of the newspaper lily was a post-war sassy and ambitious um gold digger exhibitionist and floozy and those are all in quotation marks because i would not ever call anyone that <laughs> um the cartoon always consisted of a picture of lily talking while dressed or undressed in a manner that showed her figure usually to girlfriends boyfriends or her boss um, to a policeman who told her that two-piece bathing suits are banned on the street, she said, oh, and in your opinion, what part should I take off? Yeah. Mm. So as you can probably guess from that description, the Lily doll was marketed towards adults. Um, and That's it was, kind of concerning. Well, it was, um, it was marketed as like a gag gift. So okay. like more as like a joke. So like, you know, you'd like go on a trip and get this and bring it back for your friend or like as like a gift for like a birthday that's supposed to be funny or you know that kind of thing so it's more of like a it's like getting a best man a blow-up doll kind of a thing yes like yep. that kind of thing um that's so... concerning as to where we are now from where it started yeah right um <laughs> so approximately one hundred thirty thousand lily dolls were produced and today the lily doll is a collector's piece and commands prices up to several thousand euros depending on their condition packaging and clothes because a ton weren't made um, and the last Lily cartoon appeared on January 5th, 1961. So it didn't have like a super long lifespan either. So how did an American woman find this as an inspiration for Barbie? Ruth and her husband, Elliot Handler, moved to Los Angeles in 1938, where uh, Elliot decided to make their furniture out of two newfound types of plastics, lucite and plexiglass. Ruth suggested that he should make his furniture commercially, and they started a furniture business. She handled the sales side of business while Elliot and his business partner, Harold Matt Matson built the furniture. They formed a small company and named it Mattel, combining parts of their names, Matt and Elliot. Oh, okay. I did not know that's how Mattel got its name. Yeah, neat. Um, and later they began using scraps from the manufacturing process to make dollhouse furniture. The furniture was more profitable than the picture, uh, than picture frames that they also made, um, and it was decided to concentrate on toy manufacturing. The company's first big seller was a yucca doodle, a toy ukulele, which started the company's successful line of musical toys. And I got a really big kick out of the phrase yucca doodle. Yucca doodle. 
1948, the Mattel Corporation was formally incorporated in California. And in 1955, the company changed toy marketing forever by acquiring the rights to produce the popular Mickey Mouse Club line of products. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the cross-marketing promotion became common practice for future toy companies. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. So Ruth claimed her idea came from her daughter, Barbara, who was becoming a preteen and how she would play with her paper dolls by pretending that they were adults. Ruth noticed that in that kind of play, children would act out future events rather than the present, such as imagining roles as college students, cheerleaders, adults with careers, that kind of thing. So she also noted the limitations of the paper dolls, including how the paper clothing failed to attach well. And personally, as someone who played with paper dolls for a bit as a kid, it's really frustrating. Yeah. Supremely frustrating to get try and get those stupid little tabs to like bend and stick, and they just don't stay. And then half the time they would like rip off. And I always ended up using like a little ball of tape and just sticking it to the doll, (laughs) and just like had a roll of tape next to me that I just like very gently peel it off at the end. That's funny. (laughs) I got very frustrated very fast with the paper dolls, but they were like pretty cheap, so like they were, you know, an easy toy. Yeah, but. They weren't super durable. And I'm sure any other kid that's played with paper dolls can fully attest to all of that struggle. So Rue's solution was um, to this was that she wanted to produce a three-dimensional plastic paper doll with an adult body and a wardrobe of fabric clothing. But her husband and Mr. Matson thought that parents wouldn't buy their children a doll with a voluptuous figure. <laughs> Jokes on them. (laughs) While the Handler family was vacationing in Europe, Ruth saw the German build Lily doll in a Swiss shop and brought it home. The Lily doll was a representative of the same concept Ruth had been trying to sell to other Mattel executives. So, of course, she brought one home to play with and study, I'm assuming. (laughs) Um, So what Ruth saw in Lily wasn't just the sassy, scantily clad woman, but a revolution in the doll making industry. The Build Lily doll held three separate patents that were absolutely new in doll making. The head and the neck were not one form connected with a seam at the shoulder, but rather the seam was mid-neck behind the chin. And the hair was not rooted, but it was like a cutout scalp that was attached by a hidden metal screw. And the legs didn't like sprawl apart when she was sitting, kind of like baby dolls do. You Mm -hmm. you know, sit them down there like in a V. Um, But they like actually like moved independently and like would stay together so like you could like position the doll and stuff um so it was a lot more manageable um so ruth saw how these features could be put to use in a children's doll and started reworking the design when they got back from their trip with the help of jack ryan she named her first doll barbie after her daughter barbara and it debuted at the new york toy fair on march 9th of 1959 what may surprise some listeners is that Barbie didn't sell very well at first. I, I did actually know that. Oh, okay. Yep. I didn't. I mean, like, I guess it makes sense. But um, so some parents took immediate issue with the more grown up appearance, specifically her chest that had distinct breasts. It wasn't until Mattel started ad- advertising Barbie on the Mickey Mouse Club, along with the other promotions for the show's actual products, that the toy really took off. Television commercials rocketed Barbie and Mattel to fame and fortune, and with the success of Barbie, Mattel introduced her boyfriend, Ken, in 1961, named after the handler's son, Kenneth. And uh, they also introduced many friends and family for Barbie and all of them over the years. 
However, it hasn't been all smooth sailings for Barbie or the handlers. In 1970, Ruth was diagnosed with breast cancer and underwent a modified radical mastectomy, which was often used at the time to to combat the disease. And I mean, in some senses, still is today. Um, And because of the difficulties in finding a good breast prosthesis, she decided to make her own. So she went on to found the company Ruthton Corp with um, someone named Peyton Massey, which manufactured a more realistic version of a woman's breast, and they called it Nearly Me. (laughs) (laughs) She personally fitted one for the then First Lady Betty Ford. Okay. Didn't know that either. In uh, 1974, Ruth resigned from Mattel after investigations of producing fraudulent financial reports. Whoops. In 1978, she was charged with fraud and false reporting to the Securities and Exchange Commission, to which she pleaded no contest, was fined $57,000 and sentenced to 2,500 hours of community service. Whoops. Yeah. Whoops. So she blamed her illness for making her unfocused on her business. And despite uh, distancing herself from her companies, Ruth continued to create her own ideas and was credited as a writer of the 1987 film Barbie and the Rocketers out of this world. She was also inducted into the Junior Achievement U.S. Business Hall of Fame in 1997. Surprisingly, after the whole fraud and false reporting thing. But okay. we, We in America have very good experience with people with fraud and bankruptcies and all that stuff doing very well after the fact yeah (sighs) anyway so in true kylie fashion i'm going to follow her all the way to the end which is at the age of 85 from complications of surgery for colon cancer i thought you said that we weren't going to do that this time well i didn't actually say that you you assumed it Uh, that's true You implied it, though. (laughs) So Ruth saw Barbie as a symbol of freedom and possibility for young girls and women. Quote, Barbie has always represented that a woman has choices. Even in her early years, Barbie did not have to settle for only being Ken's girlfriend or an inveterate shopper. She had the clothes, for example, to launch a career as a nurse, a stewardess, a nightclub singer, I believe the choices Barbie represents helped the doll catch on initially, not just with daughters, who would one day make up the first major wave of women in management and professionals, but also with mothers, end quote. Barbie was also a pretty big step away from the baby doll that was so prominent at the time, which had a pretty limited range of what a child could imagine with it and um, on it, like, in my opinion, very much enforced traditional gender roles, whereas oh, yeah. Barbie, you know, gave you a little bit more leeway um, like at the time, like you couldn't really, really play that much with gender roles, but like it definitely opened up a much wider idea of what a woman could do that wasn't just have a baby and be a mother kind right. of thing. Yeah. Which as someone who played with Barbies as a kid, I super appreciated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to go along with Barbie's more creative play style, Ruth created a backstory for her. She was named Barbie Millicent Roberts from Willows, Wisconsin, and she was a teenage fashion model. The first Barbie doll wore a black and white zebra-striped swimsuit and a signature top-knot ponytail and was available as either a blonde or a brunette, which actually, I don't think I realized that the original like Barbie line had brunette. I think I assumed they were always just blonde. Yeah, same. I, I never would have assumed that. Yeah, she came as both blonde and brunette. Which is nice. Um, 
So the original Barbie's clothes were ma- uh, created by Mattel fashion designer Charlotte Johnson as well. The first Barbie dolls were manufactured in Japan with their clothes hand-stitched by Japanese home workers. Around 350,000 Barbie dolls were sold during the first year of production. So remember how I said things didn't go super smoothly for Barbie? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, in March of 1961, um, Lewis Marks and company sued Mattel. After, after licensing Lily, they claimed that Mattel had infringed on Grinder and Hauser's, the creator's patent for the Build Lily hip joint. And they fair. also claimed that Barbie was a direct takeoff and copy of Build Lily. Oh, weird. Fair. And you know what? In retrospect, I really probably should have tried harder to find a picture of Build Lily, but I, I didn't immediately find one. Yeah. Um, so I can't actually say for sure, but I'm pretty sure it was probably very similar. <clears throat> so I mean, they're claiming the hip joint is the same, and that's kind of like what you mentioned right in the beginning that she liked. Right, yeah, so. she liked, yeah, that was one of the things that she really liked. Um, but they did claim that Barbie was a direct, like, copy. Yeah. So um, the company additionally claimed that Mattel falsely and misleadingly represented itself as having originated the design. Which it didn't. Mattel count, uh, counterclaimed, and the case was settled out of court in 1963. In 1964, Mattel bought Griner and Hauser's copyright and patent rights for the Build Lily doll for $21,600. That's how it goes in the yep. toy industry. Oh, you want to sue me for copying you? Well, I have I'm more gonna, money. I'm going to buy your copyright. So another complaint was, and still is, that Barbie conveyed an unrealistic body image for girls. A standard Barbie doll is 11.5 inches tall, giving a height of 5 foot 9 inches at a 1-6 scale. Barbie's vital statistics have been estimated at 36 inches for her chest, 18 inches for her waist, and 33 inches for her hips. It's a little thin on the waist area right there. That is a uh, very scary looking hourglass shape. <laughs> so according to research by the University's Central Hospital in Helsinki, Finland, she would lack the 17 to 22% body fat required for a woman to menstruate. AKA she wasn't like healthy enough to, because usually if you stop menstruation, you're either extremely, extremely fit and that's why you don't have that body fat, which is fine, or you're severely malnourished. Yep. Who knows? <laughs> Kylie wildly gesticulates. Yes. <laughs> um, in 1997, Barbie's body mold was redesigned and given a wider waist. And actually, I had some that had the wider waist, and I had some that had the really tiny waist as mm-hmm. a kid. And I remember getting super frustrated that the clothes wouldn't fit both ways. <laughs> Um, so Mattel said that they would make the doll better suited to contemporary fashion designs by changing the, the waist width. In 2016, Mattel introduced a range of new body types, tall, petite, and curvy. Curvy Barbie received a great deal of media attention and even made the cover of Times Magazine. Curvy Barbie received a great deal of media attention and even made the cover of Time Magazine with the headline, Now Can We Stop Talking About My Body? Complaints also point to a lack of diversity in the line. Starting in 1980, it produced Hispanic dolls, and later came models from across the globe. For example, in 2007, it introduced Cinco de Mayo Barbie, wearing a ruffled red, white, and green dress, which echoed the Mexican flag. Mm -hmm. And then in a slightly 
Concerning terms, we have Colored Francie that made her debut in 1967, and she's sometimes described as the first African-American Barbie doll. However, she was produced using the exact same head molds for the white Francie doll and lacked any sort of other, like, characteristics that one would consider... It was toy blackface, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, the first African American doll officially in the Barbie range is usually regarded as Chrissy, oh Christy, sorry, who made her debut in 1968. Black Barbie was launched in 1980, but again, still had Caucasian features. In 1999, Mattel created a focus group with African American children, parents, early childhood specialists, and clinical psychologist Darlene Powell Hudson, that prompted the company to create new molds for the doll. Thank you and changed facial features, skin tone, hair textures, and names. So despite the concern, Mattel turned Barbie into a successful franchise of Barbie-branded goods like books, apparel, cosmetics, video games, and movies, starting with Barbie and the Nutcracker in 2001. And then she began appearing in a series of animated films, which ranged from like Barbie and the Nutcracker to the 12 Dancing Princesses to Swan Lake. Um... All sorts of things. And I think there's one that's like the Prince and the Popper. So like they echo a lot of like classic um, literature too, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Um, so these direct-to-DVD films have sold over 110 million units worldwide. Whoa. Yeah, as of 2013. And both Barbie and Ken have been characters in Toy Story 2 and 3. Yes. Yes. And Barbie is voiced by Ariel. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is awesome. Okay. So beyond the product sales, Barbie has become a cultural icon and has been given honors that are rare in the toy world. In 1974, a section of Times Square in New York City was renamed Barbie Boulevard for a week. The Musée d'Arts Décoratif in Paris at the Louvre held a Barbie exhibit in 2016 which featured 700 Barbie dolls over two floors, as well as works by contemporary artists and documents like newspapers, photos, and videos that all contextualized Barbie. I really wish I could have seen that. That would have been really cool. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. In 1986, the artist Andy Warhol created a painting of Barbie, and it then sold at auction at Christie's London for $1.1 million. Whoa. Yeah. In 2015, the Andy Warhol Foundation then teamed up with Mattel to create an Andy Warhol Barbie. Okay. Yep. Neat. Yeah. Um, Barbie has played a huge role in inspiring little girls that they can be whatever they want to be. Barbie has been everything from a mother, a doctor, a vet, an astronaut, a rock star, a pilot, a police officer, a paleontologist, and President of the United States, just to name a few. Nice. And like, I literally just took, like, I went to the Barbie website and went, like, occup- like went to, like, the career section and just, like, grabbed a bunch of them. Yeah. I like paleontologists. I know. I was like, that's a fun one. <laughs> In what I consider a great step, Mattel recently released its Inspiring Women series, which pays tribute to incredible heroines of the time. Courageous women who took risks, changed rules, and paved the way for generations of girls to dream bigger than ever before. So currently, the five dolls in the collection are Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Jean King, Florence Nightingale, Rosa Parks, and Sally Ride. Very cool. Yeah, and I was like, that's awesome. And now I suddenly want to go out and buy some more Barbie dolls. (laughs) You have your Elphaba Barbie doll. Elphaba, yeah. Yes. 
Cool. All right. So time for our call to action. You guys can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can send us emails at halfwitpod at gmail.com. Yeah, if uh, you have any suggestions or ideas for topics or um, anything like that, we would greatly appreciate hearing from you. Yeah, absolutely. And we, you can find us at halfwit-history.com, which is our website. It has all the, ep- all the episodes up on it. And you can find us on Ko-Fi if you want to send us a little money every once in a while. That would be a very coffee. cool. Well, you know, a tip. Yeah, a Yes, coffee. fund my coffee addiction, please. Yes. <laughs> she, she does better notes than me, so she needs the focus. <laughs> I run on coffee. I don't particularly care what kind. I just need coffee. <laughs> so our Ko-Fi is ko-fi.com forward slash halfwit history. And thank you to The Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. It You can find his link to his SoundCloud down in our show notes. Yeah, go check him out. Okay, are fun we facts. good for... Yeah, are we good for fun facts? Fun facts, fun, fun facts. facts. Yes, please. You want to go first? Um, I have plenty. I also have plenty. I will go first. Okay, good, because I need to decide. I wrote my notes so long ago that I can't remember what I have. All right, so... On March 13th of 1997, the Phoenix Lights, a series of unidentified lights, are seen over Phoenix, Arizona by hundreds of people, and it is now a hotly debated controversy in the UFO community. I feel like maybe next year I'll do that one. That would be fun. All right. Uh, March 13th of 1877, the first U.S. patent for earmuffs is issued to teenage Chester Greenwood of Farmington, Maine. There you go. Maine yeah. of pride. Woo, woo. Well, also, March 15th of 1820 was when Maine became a state. Oh. So. Very woo. cool. Woohoo. Well, as always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye. Since you've gone.